system. Today is March 25th, 2013. This is Amy Begley interviewing Henley Debo for the RRCA Women Pioneers of Running Oral History Project. Henley is best known for being the first woman president of the RRCA and the first executive director of the RRCA. Hello, Henley. Hello, Amy. How are you? I'm good. You kind of have the get the honor of being involved with a lot of organizations from the get-go, getting them off the ground, getting them running, being one of the first women directing a lot of things, dealing with running. Um, what got you, I guess, addicted to running or involved in running in the first place? Well, my daughter, Robin um, Routon, was 12 years old and beat the entire school in the president's physical fitness test 600-yard run, and this was back in 1975, I guess, and um, she was 12 years old, and she, her father said, oh, I think you have talent, Robin, so he started her on a running program, and um, back then, none of us knew anything about running, and he certainly didn't, and so he thought... um, the best way to get her in shape was for her to run intervals. So um, he was an airline pilot, and when he would go on a trip, I would have to take her to the track to do this schedule of intervals that he had her doing. And um, she was miserable. But anyway, she did them. She was an obedient 12-year-old, and she did them. And I would sit there and watch her and thought, hmm, this sort of looks like awful. This looks like misery, but it might be fun, too, because I had been a tomboy growing up and then got married and had kids and didn't do any sport, and I thought, well, maybe I can do this. So I started running at that track when she was doing intervals and liked it. And so... um I would I always say that my daughter was my inspiration for starting to run. Aw. It's, uh, it's amazing that she was an obedient 12-year-old. That's kind of a funny statement. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's about the age they start to rebelling, so it's amazing. Yeah, well, she did her rebellion later on after we all got into the distances, and, you know, she she did her did her rebellion thing, but she she did it, and she... She was a great competitor, won, you know, lots of championships in Virginia, um, got a scholarship to William & Mary running, and um, so forth. So she was definitely my inspiration. And, you know, I I just did a mile on the track for many months and then all of a sudden started doing more, and I just loved it. Whereas for her, it was more of a, of a job or something um, for a long time, but I loved it, and, you know, it just really opened up, did the typical thing it does for women, just really opened up confidence for me and and, um, new new, um, vistas. It it sounds like it because I saw that you were the D.C. Board Runner Secretary of Front in 1975 to 76, so you must have... uh, jumped right on board and got really involved with running from the beginning then. Yeah, the the D.C. Roadrunner Club, which was a, an affiliate of the Roadrunners Club of America, had 
had little races every weekend, and they would have a, a longer race, and they would have a fun run, mile fun run, and we started out doing those, and and then it just uh, just the socialization of meeting those other people, which I had never hadn't had. I sort of had a kind of sequestered life as a wife and mother, and um, it just really opened up new worlds for me to meet, uh, you know, all the various different people that come to do road races. And there weren't very many people at the time. You know, this is before the running boom really started. And so you were involved in the D.C. runners, and then um, I guess kind of the big event happened. Gus Darman asked you to kind of help with the, with the torch relay. Well, before that, um, uh, at the D.C. Roadrunner races, I would see about 10 or 12 women of the same women all the time running, all from all over metropolitan Washington. And um, there were lots of men's clubs in the area, but no women's clubs. In fact, the men's clubs only had the wives who didn't run as members or they weren't actually members and there was nothing that that was established there was nothing for women running so we 12 people 12 women got together at a, at a house and um decided we'd form our own women's running club and um we decided almost immediately on the Washington Run Hers R U N capital H E R S and um, that was a quick decision, and then it took us about two hours decide, to decide on our club colors, you know, a bunch of women. And um, we decided on purple and green, um, green for new beginnings and purple for royalty. And um, they voted me as president. And that was um, a huge uh, step right there because, I realized I had a, you know, an obligation to support those other women and to try to encourage other women to start running and join our club. And the, the men's clubs in the area just hated us. I mean, they were, they thought they laughed at us and um, were very derisive of our club colors and. Of course, back then, all the clothes were all polyester and and uh, men's. There were no women's clothes. So two of the women in our club, um, Valerie Nye and Ellen Wessel, decided, well, we'll start making women's running clothes um, and we'll sell them. So on Ellen's dining room table, she they started cutting clothes and Val sewed them and they named their company Moving Comfort. So out of the Washington Run Hers came the very famous and wonderful company, Moving Comfort. But um, being president of the Run Hers was just, um, I realized that I liked administration, I liked to write, I liked to talk to people on the phone, I liked encouraging um, other women who uh, saw us, and there were just there were very few women running. I mean, you'd run on the bike trail, and there would just be men, you know, no women, no track teams for the girls. Um, Title Nine, I guess, had come into existence just five years or four years before that. Um, but anyway, um, being elected president of the Runhers was a huge 
was the first step in my um, activism for women's running. And out of and at, because of that, um, I met Jeff Darman, who was then president of the Roadrunners Club of America, and um, saw him at a women's race, tiny little women's race, and um, met him for the first time and told him I'd like to volunteer if he ever needed a volunteer. And a few weeks later, he called me and said, well, the State Department has called me and asked if we could provide a volunteer to help with organizing the women's torch relay that was going to run from Seneca Falls, New York, New York State, down to Houston, um, taking three months to do it, um, ending up in Houston for the International Women's Year Conference. So I said, yeah, I'd like to do that. And so I'd go to the State Department several times a week, and Gloria Steinem was there and Bella Abzug and all these famous feminists um, that I had only read of. And, of course, they were in some other room planning the IWI conference, and I was sitting in a room organizing the running clubs and police and things like that as, as the torch ran from Seneca Falls to Houston. And at the end of those three months, um, having volunteered for many hours in the State Department, um, they said, well, we we want to pay your way to go to Houston so you can be there for the last week and help us with the torch as it comes into town and be there for the whole thing. And I was thrilled. So I flew down to Houston and... Um, helped with the torch as it came in, and a huge um, part of my activism also started there because Leoland Reinhardt and Jacqueline Hansen, the two America, the first two American women to break 240 in the marathon, were there. And they had paved their own way to come to Houston to lobby for a women's marathon in the Olympics. And I didn't know there was no marathon for women in the Olympics. I didn't even know. I guess I was just, my consciousness was just being raised that um, women weren't even allowed to run more than, um, I guess it was um, 600 meters in the in track and field. And, um, you know, no distances at all. And, in fact, Playboy had come out with a um, a big article saying, written by a doctor saying that women's boobs would fall, uh, would um, droop, and their uteruses would fall out if they ran long distances. <laughs> it's not good for them. So, of course, Playboy, you know, would promote that. But anyway, ja- I met Jacqueline and Leland, two women um, who, who I had only read about in track and field news, and um, and they told me why they were there, and I said, well, gosh, this is something that that I can do something about maybe. So I went back to Washington and I called Jeff and said, told him about it. And he said, well, we're going to start, we're going to re- restart the women's committee of the Roadrunners Club of America. I guess it had lapsed for some reason. Well, you can be the chair of it and we'll call it the Women's Olympic Distance Committee. And it's... Um, primary function will be to promote women's running but also to publicize through the RRCA the fact that they're 
there is no women's marathon in the Olympics. So um, uh, we did that, and about a year later at Boston, I organized a seminar, and at the time I was consulting with Head Sportswear, which had a line of running clothes, and um, got them to sponsor it, and had a panel um, which had um, Jacqueline Hansen and Catherine Switzer and Ellen Wessel and Jeff and... um, um, Oh, Henderson, what's his first name? Can't even remember. Joe Joe Henderson. Joe Henderson was on. These were all people who had very quietly been um, lobbying for the women's Olympics, uh, women's marathon in the Olympics. And and we had no idea it would – I put up a few posters around and on the inside of the toilets and women's bathrooms and in the the hotel and – and we had a standing room only crowd, whereas uh, the AAU Women's Committee had nobody, which was really funny. And they had turned me, the AAU Women's Committee had turned me down when I'd asked them if they would have a, you know, a, provide somebody on the panel. I guess they were too, they thought the RCA was just nothing. And, and, um, but we had a standing room only crowd there at a room in Boston and, the panelists talked about this issue. Women didn't have a marathon, and this guy stood up in the back of the room. turned out he was a lawyer from Washington, D.C., and he said, well, I know that you have to have so many countries and so many um, continents um, around the world participating in order to get um, – the groundswell for an event to be added to the Olympics. I can't remember his name. But anyway, um, Catherine Switzer didn't know that, but they got together after this meeting, and um, and then she um, got a job with Avon and staged um, women's races all over the world then to um, promote the fact that women could run long distances, and most of the races were 20K and up. Um, so um, out of that came a lot of good things. And then Joe Henderson, funded by Nike, started the International Running Committee, the IRC, and invited me and Jeff to be on it um, along, I think Keith Peters was on it, and um, who else? Oh. Jacqueline Hansen, John. Jacqueline Hansen and the the wonderful runner from from um, oh the woman from Oregon. Uh, I know um, Nina. I guess Nina Kusick was on it. And she Nina Kusick and oh, um, she was one of the first distance runners, and she was from Washington or Oregon, and I'm drawing a blank on her name, but anyway. It was a wonderful committee, and we and Nike funded it, and have I've got this fabulous poster um, that they did that they somehow found 1910 of women running in um, an authentic poster of women running in long dresses that was there um, part of the brochure. But anyway, we we lobbied and we did things and did PR, and it was my first, I guess. Introit into the real movers and shakers 
um, you know, in the running world and, and um, you know, just realized then that everybody respected each other and, and um, unlike the AAU, which then became USATF at the time, was very, um, looked down their noses at the RCA and the things that we were trying to do, but um, it was the little group from the RCA that started this, this going, and then out of that also became, um, I decided, well, we, our, our women's running committee, we would stage women's races all over the country, which would publicize the fact that women didn't, weren't, weren't allowed to run distances. So we started, started the women's um, distance festivals, and it just educated people all over the country through the RRCA and through these races about the fact that women did not have, weren't allowed to run over 400 meters. And, you know, this was a way for us to show them that we could. So clubs volunteered to put, you know, any any club could put on a women's distance festival, and we had them all over the country. And uh, I got sponsors for them, and we had T-shirts and um, and then, of course, in 1984, we had the first women's marathon, and you know the story about that. So, I'm sure, you've and, um, interviewed Joni. Uh, she wants to be interviewed after Boston, but I did interview um, Laurel James, who was the director of that of the first. Uh, oh, you party. did in Olympia. <laughs> yep. Oh, neat. Yeah, so. I got to interview her about putting on, you know, the first uh, Olympic trials for women's marathon. That was, that was a pretty neat um, sort of uh, her to be able to talk about, you know, from kind of the get-go to, uh, you know, the hosting. And she talked about how their presentation and all the little touches that they did to make the Olympic trials really special for the women that were yeah. in there. Yeah, it was, I remember when they, um, they had to vie for the right to hold it there. And, you know, there was, I've forgotten what the other cities were that were trying to get it, but Olympia won it, and um, they just did a fabulous job. I wasn't able to go, but I heard about it. And I, and I have one, the poster from that um, event. It was definitely a, an interesting experience for her because, you know, Joni being out there for a while and everybody knowing about the knee surgery. And it'll be interesting to get Joni's perspective as well and talk to the race director and other people that were there. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you get to hear it all. <laughs> I do, and I get to hear the, you know, the stories being intertwined because I interviewed Jacqueline Hansen and she talked about the IRC, which is actually the first time I ever heard about it, and now – it is definitely a, a common thread being intertwined through all of the stories. Which is yeah, it is great. because it, it got together a diverse group from all over the country who all had the same mission and um, just such nice people and and um, bringing all their various talents to the table and um I remember we met up in Canada one time. I've forgotten why we were up there, but um, and it was just. Um, I should send you some of the. I've got. I think I've got photos of some of the art from some of the stuff from that that I'll try to send to you if I can. Just just for your interest, if you yeah, definitely. Oh, I love it. 
definitely. Um, it's the funny part about all of this is you were the first person that actually told me that the IRC was Nike funded. Um, yeah. Mention it. So yeah. you know that Nike had really gotten into you know trying to promote it as well. Oh yeah, they were they were they were the main they were the only backers as far as I know. Um, and I think that was because Joe Henderson's connection and um I think Keith Peters was on the committee too. And you know, Keith Peters was one of the early um employees of Nike. Not not the earliest, but you know, he was back there. And um you know, it was all around that time um I ran Boston in qualified for Boston in nineteen seventy. I think it was, and ran in 77. And 1977 at Boston, and I remember this because of what happened, was when they came out with their first women's running shoe. Mm -hmm. And um, it was bright yellow with a blue swoosh. And my ex-husband, husband at the time, convinced me that I should buy the Nike the women's Nike to run Boston in, and you know every shoe is fits differently. Mm-hmm. And the I bought the size that I'd always bought, and they were a half size too short. And I ended up with nine, losing nine toenails <laughs> after Boston. <laughs> you know, it's all downhill for the first ten miles, and. Um, and my toes were hitting the ends. Of, I mean, that it was just so stupid. I mean, you never wear a brand new pair of shoes in America. <laughs> oh, wow. So, but they, you know, they were they were real. Nike was realizing that women um, were going to play uh, a big role in in this sport, and so they would come came out with the women's running shoe around seventy seven and. And then I guess it was must have been 78 or 79 when they funded the IRC. And I'll, I'll try to send you some of the stuff just because, it, you know, it has the Nike logo on it. And they did, of course, they did a wonderful job with the, with the printed materials and everything. But, yeah. And, and they, you know, I'm sure they were the ones who funded us to fly all over the place and have our meetings. So I don't know where else the money would have come from. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely interesting that, you know, Nike was fun. They were, they were ahead of the times. So, I mean, they, you know, they knew that women would probably be running here soon, and they wanted to be the first ones in on the game, like running, like uh, moving comfort. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't know that that actually started from the run hers, but I've, I've read about it, and uh, they're on, actually, Ellen, and, and uh, they're on my list to interview for the moving comfort. Um, and I love now that I can know that it came from you know, the runners organization when you guys first started that running club. So yeah, <laughs> it did. It did. It was. It was. Um, we we uh, wear tested the clothes and were the models for their early posters, and you know, just all sorts. Of, and you know, helped uh, at at one point her original partner opted out of the business and and uh she didn't Ellen didn't know anybody who sewed well I sewed and I found somebody who could um 
helped make the clothes for a while until, by chance, she met Elizabeth Gokey, who then became her partner. And she'll tell you all that. I mean, it's a wonderful story, and and uh, we're very proud that um, that we she you know she was a run her to begin with. And <laughs> uh, you definitely intertwine with all of the women pioneers in the beginning of running, and your history with being a pioneer is really amazing. And during this time, you're not only on the IRC, but you helped fund, you were doing the RFC Women's Business Festivals. You were a vice president east at the RRCA. Um, and then you just continued climbing the ladder in the RRCA. Tell me about the, um, this time period with the RRCA and, and then trying to also push women's, uh, women's long distance running. Well, um, in, in addition to being um, um, vice president of the RRCA, uh, I, they also, uh, nobody wanted the job, so I was associate editor of Footnotes, and they gave me, um, they gave me a column. So I had a, I realized that I loved writing, and so I would write a column on women's running um, every, every quarter for Footnotes for Gosh, I, I probably did that for eight years. Um, but um, so th- that gave me a forum to talk about women's running and the and the whole thing about um, the State Department and the torch relay and meeting Jacqueline Hansen and the fact that there was no women women's marathon and no distance even no distance event. So it was just really gave me a, a forum there and also had wonderful mentors. Jeff Darman was a mentor, and as was um, Harold Tinsley, who was the president of, of the RRCA at the time. And and I didn't realize it, but they were thinking of me for president. And I did run for president in 1986 and um, was voted in. And it was no big deal. I mean, I was the first woman, but, I mean, they didn't. There was no big fanfare that I was the first woman president. I didn't think of it as as any history. It was just, you know, probably nobody else wanted it. Is <laughs> what, what it was. But you know, I had done the the years of vice president and had you know earned my chops, I guess. And and um, and one of my goals was to open. Um, we had never had the the RCA office. The RSCA organization period was small. We only had 300 clubs, and and it always been in somebody's basement, Harold's basement, or or you know the dining room table or something. And my goal was to open our first national office because it seemed logical that I was there in Alexandria, right on the edge of Washington D.C., and it would be a good place. So. Um, the first year I ran, ran it out of an extra room in my house, but then um, after that first year I rented a little 600-square-foot office, and we had our first national office and um, and um, hired a part-time person. Um, and what is her name? And she's out there, and I bet you know her. I'm going to have to call you back later not to put it in this, but I'll write you and tell you what her name is but she was a, a very well run uh well-known runner in the washington area and uh she worked for me part-time and 
and I got funding from Nike and uh, you know I started learning how to get sponsors Nike and Gatorade and and we didn't have many at first so we we had more and more all the time and then we um we started growing but meanwhile I guess the biggest crisis I had was the very year that I had I was elected president one of the big benefits belonging to the RRCA was our insurance and right at that time 1986 was a huge insurance crisis in the United States and we lost our insurance and um that was a big deal because that was one of the main um, benefits of being an RRCA club. You got RRCA liability insurance under our umbrella. And so, you know, I had to deal with a, a huge crisis. And I'd never, I mean, here I was, a housewife. I mean, I'd never done anything like this or tried to, find insurance and what do I do and how do I keep all these clubs from not leaving the this organization and so I found a way to get temporary insurance for about a year and then found an insurance company after a year to um, come back in to to be our insurance carrier and um, and then we started to grow and grow and grow and I think when I left there were 700 clubs. I don't know how many there are now. Probably a lot more under Gene. But um, you know, the running boom was happening, and people were starting running clubs, and we had our insurance back. And and so the other thing that happened in that year that um, that we lost insurance, I thought, well, we have to come up with other benefits to make people want to join the RRCA. So um, I came up with a children's running program and instituted that um, around the country and then um, wrote, Ellen and I wrote a book on women's beginning running and that was several years before that actually in the early 80s but um, had to come up with ideas on how to, how to a- attract clubs around the country to belong to the RRCA, the benefits of belonging to our organization even if we didn't have the insurance. And then we got it back, and 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 everything was fine. But meanwhile, I had been asked to um, direct the first Bonnie Bell race for women in Washington, which I think that was um, in the late, like, 78. And I was race director of those Bonnie Bells for quite a few years, which you know, started out being a couple of hundred women and ended up, I mean, that sounds like nothing now, but, um, you know, women weren't encouraged to run in men's races. So this gave women um, the freedom to be out there and and uh, not feel threatened by men runners, and that sounds crazy now, but, I mean, it was it was true back then. It is not. And then you also, speaking of women's safety, you also wrote the Women's Runner Safety Program for the RCA. Is that right? Yeah, and that happened because um, one morning when I was running, I was uh, attacked while running on the bike trail, 
where I would always run and predictably at the same time, the same place every day. And um, when I called the U.S. Park Police to report what had happened, um, they said, oh, we, we've known that guy's been out there. And I said, what? <laughs> you knew he was out there and you didn't warn anybody? And they said, well, we, we just don't have the resources to warn um, everybody out there running. Well, there weren't that many then, and there weren't very many women running. I got away from the guy, by the way. Uh, you know, he, he was hiding um, around a bend in the woods where I would run on this trail beside the Potomac. And um, and I, he jumped out at me, and I was able to get away. But then I found out that several women had been attacked, not just me. And so I went to the paper, the Washington Post, called a reporter that I didn't know, but I called him and I said, hey, here's some news, and got an article written in the paper and um, got the U.S. Park Police furious with me because I said they aren't uh, protecting women out there, and they ended up calling me up, and by then I was in the RRCA office and said, we'd like to set up a meeting with you. (laughs) And so this lieutenant and his sidekick came to the office and with a huge chip on their shoulder and I said look you know I don't want to make you all look bad or anything and um, you know if you can't publicize what's happening to women let trust me enough to let me do it I'll do it I'll get the word out and um, they had never done anything like that before but um, they they took a chance on me, and I started writing these bulletins about um, attacks on women in the greater Washington metropolitan area, contacted all the police departments, which there must have been 25 all around the Beltway, and they started sending me reports of women who were attacked, and I would send out a bulletin every time, and I started with, I don't know, 50 individuals and police departments and stuff to begin with, and it ended up being um, several thousand um, on this list of people that I would send. And I would start over every year, and I would list all of these incidents that happened to women. And the police started noticing. The FBI called me and said, you know, we want to have a meeting. And I set up some... um, seminars and and then I got funding from the Sporting Goods Manufacturers Association to, to send um, to have these seminars all over the country about women runners safety so we went all over the country um, and I took a woman whose daughter had been murdered who agreed to tell her story and I took US Park Police female officers and in every city got an FBI agent to come and be on the panel and and um, we came up with safety tips which I think they're still using today and um, it turned out to be well you know it was it was sort of a negative thing in a way um, women being attacked but but it brought good PR to the RRCA for being activists and, and um, doing, you know, doing this. 
And then the other thing that I was really uh, proud of, which wasn't exactly women's running, but it was while I was executive director, was um, sort of a, the forefront of this fight against obesity um, got a uh, handbook written for teachers to help get kids into running programs with lesson plans and sample things they could do with the kids with running and how to put on a race for kids. And it's a thick handbook, and I don't know if she still has any copies or not. But anyway, we I got it funded by Nike and Runner's World, and we printed thousands of them because I remember lugging those boxes into the office. Um, and we made them available to all the any any club around the country who wanted to put try to have outreach to their elementary schools in their area. They could have as many of these handbooks as as they wanted. They just had to pay for the postage. So anyway, um, that's something that you know when I re- see it in the news about obesity and kids and. And you know, see see them putting on races for the kids and stuff. I think, well, we we did that a long time ago, and you could have taken advantage of our handbook. <laughs> that is definitely um, you are ahead of the curve for sure. I mean, even in you know early two thousands, obesity stuff was barely even getting out there. Now it's every time you turn around, it's I all childhood obesity. And um, you are about thirty years. Ahead of the ahead of the curve, uh, and during this time, you were executive director from 1990 to 2002, uh, and you were the first executive director. What made the RRCA go in that direct direction? Well, um, like like I said, my goal as president of the RRCA when I was elected um, in 1986 was to open the first. RRCA office, which after a year I did in that little tiny little place and, you know, did it for another three years during my term as president. Um, Well, I guess there were two terms. I I think we were, there were two-year terms and I was elected for for the second time. And when that ended, when 1989 or 1990, you know, I had to step down as president. Um, Jane Dolly was elected president, and um, and so we had, and I had been doing that. You know, running the office as a volunteer, um, and it, it started out as a few hours a week, and then by the time I finished, it was full time. And so, of course, we had to put out, um, we had to put out uh, a what do they call it when you uh, announce a job opening. You know, we we advertised the fact that the RCA was looking for an executive director. Well, we didn't have any benefits. The salary they voted on was um, seventeen thousand, and um, no benefits, nothing. I mean, just seventeen thousand a year, and um, nobody applied for the job. Nobody wanted it, and I said, "Well, I want it. I'll take it." <laughs> I'll take it at seventeen thousand. Seventeen thousand a year versus nothing yeah. uh, was a lot. And plus, you know, I was just, you know, for me, it was just this opportunity to be, to do what I loved and had been doing anyway. 
So um, they decided to hire me, and um, we uh, eventually got benefits, and we got a uh, insurance. And um, I think when I stepped down in 2002, we had five employees and five full-time employees, and um, a much bigger office and. And I had been allowed to, you know, I mean, then they had, I don't know, 50 applicants for the job, and it was five times, the salary was 50 times more than I had been paid, and, you know, it was just, to me, it was just this fabulous opportunity that nobody else wanted, and, you know, there was no prestige with it at the time, but... I think, you know, there 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 was by the time I stepped down, and there is now. So anyway, it was just one of these things where nobody wanted the job, but I did. I think it seems to me that that's the way a lot of organizations start out working. There's always a few people that are very dedicated and are willing to do it, and they do it because they love it and that, it's just what they do. I ask women all the time, like, well, why did you start running? Or, and they said, I just loved it. I didn't care that somebody told me no. I just wanted to do it. And that seems to be the common thread is everyone says, you know, I, I just loved it. And, and that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I think that's so um, typical of women in particular. I think, I don't know, did you ever see the movie Fried Green Tomatoes? Yes. And remember, uh, what's her name who started exercising? <laughs> and um, and she just bloomed. And you know, you see that all the time. Or more so, not so much now because it's sort of a way of life for for girls and women to run. But back then, when so few women were running, and then when they started running, and and I know this was typical my my story um, too. Um, you just, I mean, it gives you so much self-confidence to know that you have the gumption or stick to it of this to get out there every day, no matter what the weather is, and and you feel so much better when you finish, even though you felt terrible to begin with, or maybe the whole run was awful, but you know you've accomplished that thing, and and that just um, is just such a confidence builder, especially for women back then. I mean, you think it's still true now? Oh, I do. I have I have so many friends that they played uh, they played team sports, and so it was always evolved around the team and you know the team doing this, team doing that. So they never really had any personal um, victories in any way. And so when they got they, you know got married, had kids, and they're taking the kids around, and there was nothing really for them. And when they started running, that became their freedom. That became their me time, and they started accomplishing things. And it, it was their victories. Mhm. And I think that's definitely when women find that, and well, even men too. If women and men find that it, it just becomes addictive. You just you know start setting goals, and you, yeah, the sense of accomplishment is just huge for people that never really had it. Yeah. And every day it's an accomplishment. Yes. It's not just it's not just running the marathon, not just having that goal and running the marathon. It's every day. It's a it's an accomplishment. 
I I uh, broke my leg a few years ago, and and so have this little hitch in my get along now that keeps me from running. But I I walk uh, a lot and hike, and I ride my horse, and I can do everything else. I just can't run. But I see you all out there, you you women, you know, with the sweat rolling off the ponytail, and and I just envy you so much. But I and I wish I could, but um, it was just, I, you know, it was it was wonderful, and I was able to do it for forty years. So, and Robin and I talk all the time about how how fortunate we feel that we ran when we did, and you know, she started when she was twelve, and I was thirty-one when I started. But it, the benefits of running at those early ages that they're now finding out, you know, are are so good for you, you know, the strengthening your bones at at the early early ages and the way we changed our diet and ate better and um just, you know, of course I, I neither one of us ever smoked, but um you know, just just the benefits as I age that I realized came from running back in in my 30s. And Robin, when she was, you know, a teenager on up, feel very, very fortunate about that. And it was just, we didn't know. And you just did it because you loved it. Yeah, we did it because we loved it. But, you know, since then they've done these medical studies and found out that they, you know, it's really good for you. Notwithstanding what Playboy said. So, <laughs> <laughs> and you were also the first one to tell me where that came from. Um, I've always asked them, and I'm like, "Did you hear, you know, those rumors about being back to women's health?" And they said yes. And I said, "You know, you know, did people talk to you about it?" But nobody ever said exactly where it came from. So I, I loved <laughs> that you added that in there that it was a Playboy, Playboy article. Yes, and probably somewhere in my boxes of stuff, I have it. Um. So, but I, you know, I don't know if, if anybody could find it in in their archives or not. But it was written by a doctor. Okay. So, and it was before, long before we started. I mean, it was in the early seventies, probably or mid seventies. Um, and after two thousand and two, when you um, uh, retired from being the executive director. What did you do after that? Well, I retired from that, and when I retired, um, one of the the uh, the reward I gave myself was to go and ride somewhere for a week, ride horses somewhere for a week. And so I chose this place that was about three hours from Washington, um, and it was right after 9-11, so it was wonderful to get out of the chaos of Washington, D.C., and drove down here um, and to this farmhouse that had horses and quiet, and you could see the stars and um, clean air and not tra- no traffic, and I thought, I've retired from that job. Nobody, you know, my children don't live there anymore, and I'm out of there. So I looked for a house. Dubai, and by the next May, I was 
living down here in Middlebrook, Virginia, which is sort of halfway between, if you know Virginia at all, uh, halfway between Lexington, Virginia, and Stanton, sort of west of Charlottesville, west of where UVA is. So uh, in the in the Shenandoah Valley, and um, my I was horse crazy little girl growing up, and never started riding in my 40s again, taking lessons. But um, a friend of mine from the U.S. Park Police retired her horse to me down here, and so I had my dream horse for the first time, and and then I bought one. Um, about a year later, which I still have, Magnolia Morning. And uh, she's a saddlebred, beautiful gray. And started showing her, which I never thought I would ever do. And um, decided I would, you know, how do you um, make people out in the country who've lived here all their lives, how do you make them trust somebody who's a come here, somebody who's moved in from somewhere else. So I decided, um, I've always been interested in um, emergency medicine, so I became, um, took a six-month course to become an EMT, joined the fire department, because I thought, well, they, they will know that I really am part of the community if I'm helping to keep people safe. And... Um, by being an EMT, so I did that. But actually, my main benefit to the fire department has been raising money for them using my skills learned through the RCA of of um, getting sponsors and writing letters and and got involved with the horse show down here. And and um, I have actually have three part time jobs at the age of sixty nine because. I don't want to run out of my money before <laughs> before I <laughs> before I kick the bucket. So um, one is uh, for 34 years I've worked with Jeff Darman on his invention, the Nike. The, no, it's not Nike anymore. It was Nike. Um, the ACLI Capital Challenge, which is a race in Washington between members of Congress and the media. Ah. So it's every May, and um, members of Congress have to have at least one woman on their team, and they, in order to to um, compete for the awards, they they all the congressman or woman, or the ABC newsman or woman has to run in it. And anyway, I've been an assistant director to Jeff for the past. 34 years. Well, assistant director sounds fancy, but that means that I get the Porta Johns and I get the the volunteers and I do all the putting up of the signs and, you know, stuff like that. So that's one of my jobs. And then, did you want to know all this? Yes, I do. I love it. (laughs) And then another one is... um, uh, I work for a company called Home Instead, Home Instead Senior Care, which is a company that's um, it's a franchise. It's all over the country, but the one here is in the three counties um, where I live, Rockbridge, Rockingham, and Augusta. And 
I'm in the marketing department, and Home Instead Senior Care provides caregivers for seniors who want to stay in their own homes. So I go around um, on my own time and um, give brochures to doctor's offices and and um, lawyers and funeral homes and beauty parlors and just go around and let people know about Home Instead and I'm very credible because I have white hair. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's fun because I believe in the company, and they're they're just it's a wonderful company, um, providing uh, a way for seniors to stay in their own homes and not have to go to a nursing home until they really want to. You can look it up online; it's interesting to read about it. Yeah. But. And then the th- my third job is is just working in this my friend's beautiful gift shop down in Lexington, which I love because I get to meet neat people and be around pretty things. And oh, it sounds like you're definitely keeping busy. Yeah, keeping busy and ride my horse as much as I can, and got a lot of friends. And interestingly, down here in I'm way out in the country, there are many women, single women down here, independent women who take care of their own farms and um, cook and garden. And it's amazing how many women are like me are down here, you know, chose this place for this beautiful place out in the country. You need to come visit. <laughs> it's, it sounds great. <laughs> Um, 
and we got invited to the Capitol to be awarded this thing. I'd forgotten all about that. And then um, the National Organization of Police Chiefs around the country, we, we took the seminar there one year, and they actually, the Park Service, put us up for a big award with the um, IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And um, we were one of the finalists because of the women's safety program with that. And I'd forgotten about that, too. But um, anyway, that was it was so interesting because I got to meet, you know, all these different people in law enforcement and learn about what they were doing and became have become I have friends in the U.S. Park Police who start who were officers just officers when I first met them, and now two of the women, one of them is deputy chief of the U.S. Park Police, and the other one is a major in the U.S. Park Police, two, two of the women that I used to take around the country with me. Um, so, um, and they feel like it, It um, the women's safety, and they run, they're runners, and the women's safety stuff helped their careers, which was a great side benefit of the whole thing. So it definitely uh, <laughs> that's amazing that it also helped their careers too. Them just getting involved with with the women's safety program, and you've still stayed involved with running uh, ever since you left the RCA. I know that you've been on the Rose Scholar Committee that awards grants. You've been on the advisory board for the National Distance Running Hall of Fame. Um, so you're you're still staying involved in in committees and things in in the distance running world. Yeah, a little bit. But when I when I stepped down, I didn't want to be one of these um, you know former executive directors that um, interfered or anything or or you know tried to be. Uh, I don't know. I just you know I didn't want to. Um, if they wanted to ask me something, they could they could ask me something. But I I didn't want to um, interfere with the new person's um, administration or whatever they were doing. But um, you know, I've been interested to know what's gone on, and I've been thrilled to see the RCA thrive under Gene, and and they send me the newsletter and. Of course, you know I'm I'm delighted about uh, how it's doing. You know my my heart will always be there. Well, I know that you were on the committee that awarded me a Rhodes Scholar in 2004. Oh, was I? Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I no. Did you have a different name? Um, I went by Yoder Begley for a while. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, um, I was looking through all of your history, and I was like, oh, she was on the committee when I got it. <laughs> so well, I you, stays involved. Yeah. Well, you know, that was that was that whole Road Scholar thing was we formed it, I don't know, in, I don't know, the late 80s or something like that. Or no, I guess it was the mid, mid-90s. And um, wonderful, Carl Sniffen was very involved in that. Do you know Carl? 
Yes, I discussed them a lot when I got the grants, and then the last couple of years I've actually been on the committee to uh, choose some of the recipients. Oh, have you? Oh, that's yeah. neat. Yep. That is really neat. Well, are you still running a lot? Um, yeah. I was with Nike for six years, and uh, we parted ways in 2011. Um, and I've been injured for, gosh, the last two and a half years, and this past injury, I think, is I think has done me in. So oh. I'm changing. I'm in. I'm in a transition period, which is is actually really good timing for this project for me. I get to interview women, and, and they've all made the transition from you know running professionally to going on with the rest of their lives. Um, you know, and it, it's really interesting because a few women actually put all of their running stuff away. They they put all the trophies away. They put everything away when they quit running because they said it was too painful. Um, other people just started coaching, you know, collegiately or in high school or running clubs, and running was still a big part of their lives, and they didn't shut it out. Um, so it's just interesting how everyone kind of, I guess, deals with the transition um, in life. Yeah. Well, did you um, did you read Kim Jones's biography? No, I haven't read that one. Well, Robin turned me on to it. She she said, Mom, you should read Kim Jones' biography. It's something, um, Dandelion is in the name. You can look it up. Okay. But um, I I got it and read it. And, you know, I've, I've, I've known Kim for ever since she came on the scene, you know, through her fame and running prowess and skills and and all, but I never knew all the stuff that she had in her life. I mean, you think, we think, or I think, maybe this is universal, you know, you think, oh, I've been through horrible stuff in my life, and if everybody knew, anybody knew this or that about me, they wouldn't like me, and, um, you know, so you try to overcome those things, and running, running helped with a lot of that, but, I mean, you you don't know. I mean, she's she was brutally honest in her book about her childhood and her life and everything that's gone. You know, the sadnesses and the happinesses and and everything. And you just you just never know about people. And it's well, just uh, astonishing to to read stuff like that and also to see how people have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. And even if, you know, even if they were injured, they either got through it or, it, it you know, running made them a stronger person to, to get through it or whatever. Um, what are you going to do now? <laughs> That's, a good, <laughs> That's a good question. Um, yeah, it's, uh, well, one, I'm doing this project for a while to kind of uh, bridge the gap and, you know, my husband and I just recently decided to uh, not have kids, so we're going to probably move back to the Midwest to be a part of my nieces and nephews' lives. Oh. Uh, he's a he's a high school science teacher, and uh, so I, I think we're going to move back to the Midwest, and I want to start a program where I go into schools, and it, the program we had, we actually did the program for a little bit in 2001, and it's called Track It's for Everybody. Um mm. Uh, there's a track meaning it means that there's a track and field event for every body type. Mm-hmm. It's to encourage kids to to try track and field and to use it as a you know way for them to have success. 
um, and to build self-confidence uh, because, you know, everybody knows from middle school to junior high, it's a really rough transition. Yeah. If you can give them something that they gain confidence in, then, and it also helps with child obesity and living a healthy lifestyle. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to work on that, and I would like to do that in conjunction with um, with a, an elite women's program. Uh, mm. Actually, starting the foundation and working on the 501c3, and it was when I started reading through all your stuff, I'm like, wow, she, you are definitely a, a person that has done that many times um, with, you know, the foundation and things like that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how, how things, um, you know, kind of get intertwined. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> where in the Midwest, where were you go? Where are you going, going to go back to? Well, my parents and family live in northeast Indiana. Um, we were probably going to maybe base out of Indianapolis um, and do, you know, the north, kind of the north region of Indiana. But my husband, wherever my husband gets a job in that region is where we'll end up. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and if if it doesn't work, if the foundation and, and group don't work, then I'll probably go back to school and um, get my teaching degree. Yeah, uh, you know, and and teaching coach with my husband. So yeah, oh, that's great. Well, you aren't you coaching now? Yeah, I'm. I coach. Well, when I got injured and they told me I couldn't run for about six weeks, my husband said, "Well, why don't you just uh, take over my high school coaching job and, and you coach?" And, so he's a volunteer assistant now, and I'm the coach, and I've, you know, fallen in love with the kids. They're just, oh, they're great. Because <laughs> I see them sporadically because I couldn't really be there with, with my running career, but now I get to see them every day. Um, yeah. The first, the first week they kept asking me, are you going to be here tomorrow? I'm like, yes, I'm your coach. But they just weren't <laughs> used to me being here. <laughs> oh, that's cute. And, uh, and I'm also coaching some recreational women who, you know, want to break two hours in the half marathon or qualify for Boston. And um, it's been an interesting experience teaching them how to how to work hard and showing them that uh, they're stronger than they think and the boundaries that they thought they had aren't really there. Mm-hmm. So that's been re- that's been really fun. Yeah. You know, oh, that's great. Well, that sounds like a wonderful idea that the track is for everybody. And what could be a better place in the Indianapolis area for for that? So, yeah, I, I'm hoping so. I'm I'm going back to Indiana in a couple of weeks, and I'm hoping to sit down with uh, a couple of different groups and foundations and and see what we can get done. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, you don't like your life is just beginning. <laughs> it is. It, you know, the funny thing was is that people always ask, what are you going to do when you grow up? But, you know, it's this joke because, you know, I was running around like a little kid for years, you know, getting to do races is my job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah, so it's, it's been, it'll be an interesting transition and, um, and just getting to talk to all these amazing women that started off distance running for us and, you know, people like you that were activists that just, um, I did it because you loved running and you loved how it made you feel. And, you know, our generation should be really, uh, really grateful to you guys for what you did and, and pushing through really hard to get to get to where we are today. And, oh, some of the women, the things they had to go through to run, I mean, jumping fences and, you know, hiding uh, to be able to run. Mm-hmm. They had barriers, you know. The kids today in this generation, there's not that many barriers like that. No. No, as a matter of fact, I've I've heard that um, 
and maybe you can confirm this that that women a lot of the women only races are not popular anymore because women want to run with the men i mean they don't they don't see the need to run in women only races yeah, it's interesting. They they don't want to do them all the time. I mean, every now and then they like the camaraderie of it, but they also like the more competitiveness of running against the men. Mm-hmm. So I think it's the women's races. They like it as a novelty and maybe a girls' weekend. But you know, as a as a going out there and getting really serious, I don't, I don't think that gives the women as much as much accomplishment. Maybe I mean they'd love to see the face of the men when they pass them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That is, it's so interesting. I mean, it's whole, it's the whole um, parallel of women getting the vote and women getting more equality and and working. Mm-hmm. And you know, women had to to go through the same awful stuff in order just to be able to run distances. Period. You know, I mean, there were so many. Uh, roadblocks to to being allowed to do that and now you know there's there's much more equality although there's still a lot lot more to be gained i mean it bugs the hell out of me that women aren't paid equally and you know in the workplace and there's still the glass ceiling and all that but you know things are changing, but women don't. Women, the women now don't. They they just don't know the history of why why they can run as freely and and uh, as as they can and have the same advantages. You know the running shoes. You know we didn't have those. We didn't have the clothes. None of it. But we didn't know we were on the precipice of history. We didn't. I was going to ask you if you knew that you were creating history and, and what would come out of all of your efforts. No, I, I didn't at the time. Um, I knew that it was it was um, it was kind of scary. I mean, I had to fight um, the AAU for one in one of the Bonnie Bells because. Um, they said that uh, in the Bonnie Bell, and, and I think that first one, you know, maybe three, maybe 300 women were going to run in it. They said you have to make them buy an AAU card um, to run in this race, or they will be illegal. And um, I said, what? I'm not going to make these women who are, who are only running in this one race buy an AAU card. It's, I mean, and I and it scared me to death to stand up against this organization, which sounded ominous to me, the AAU. Um, but I did, and um, it was in the it was in the Washington Post. It's it like I think the headline was "Tempest in a Tennis Shoe" or something. And um, you know, I said, "No, I'm not going to make these women buy a card," and they backed down. And it was the first inkling of of a little bit of power, you know, that you could have the courage to stand up for your convictions if it was the right thing to do and, and maybe win. And they backed down. So um, 
at the time there was a bit, and this sounds so archaic, but the RRCA and the AAU, which later became USATF, were were um, enemies because the RRCA was for equality and participation, and the AAU was elitist. Yes. So anyway. Um, so all that stuff went on, and you you think when you think back on it, you realize you know it was the beginning of a movement, but it was the beginning of a movement that was happening everywhere with all sorts of stuff, you know, women's Title IX and women's equality in the workplace and birth control pills, for that matter. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so anyway. The RCA, it seems, um, they always did that. They backed down on everything they did. Uh, you know, they banned people for, you know, nine months, and then they went back on it. They said, you know, can't have prize money, but then they let them put right. the trust, you know, and right. they did the trust thing. I mean, it it's so funny that they had all these, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and then they, they just backed down on every single thing that they wanted to do. No. Yeah. And you know it was it was uh it was always a little core of RRCA people that would get into those committees like Don Cardong started the Tac Trust and Jeff was a part of it and I mean what was it not Tac Trust but it was the other thing that was you know fighting the AAU for the equality and the prize money. Yeah. And so it was always these wonderful um, fair um, people like Don Cardong and Jeff and and Keith Peters and people like that, Joe Henderson, who who were in the background, you know, making making the big ogre of the AAU step down or or fight them, yeah. and the people in the white hats won out. it's fun to think about well anyway we've probably done 90 minutes almost it's amazing (laughs) see I told you you asked it's going to take this long and oh yes it does oh gosh (laughs) Uh, because you know I I try to find little tidbits and you know bring it up and then of course that brings up more stories than than they yeah Um, yeah it's it's, it is really fun and, and as the stories um, as I said, they intertwine so much, and I, you know, I get to ask more, and I get to see kind of both sides of, of every story and who was involved. Um, and you, you know, you stood toe to toe with a lot of people. You were, you know, seeing in the RCA and the IRC and fighting against AAU and trying to get the marathon in the Olympics. Uh, you, you fought really well for running. It's, it's amazing. Well, it uh, it did a lot for me. So. Um... You know, I wanted other women to find out the same thing. Well, I will send you these. Uh, I think somewhere I have these posters and some things. That just, I mean, I know it's uh, this is an oral history, and okay. uh, but you you might be interested in them. So yeah, that'd be great. I would I would love that. That's um, just I don't know, I'm trying to get everybody's you know books and biographies and all the different things I can. I can find to just give a bigger, better picture of, of everything. Uh, oh, and mm-hmm. I did, the Cam Jones biography is called Dandelion Growing Wild. I did, I just found that. So. What was that? Wild. 
um, the Kim Jones biography. It's called oh, Andalan, that's it. Mm-hmm. Andalan Growing Wild. Yep. Yep. Try, uh, try to uh, see if you can get it and read it. I think you. I think it will be very. Um, it, it's. It really. It was. Uh, I enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add, or any any advice to women, or or people that are just starting out, or changing careers, or or whatever you want to add about women's running? <laughs> Well, I, I I really I somebody said and I think there've been studies about this that there are different stages in your life or you you have different, you know, uh chapters. And um I could definitely see chapters in my life and I'm, you know, I'm on this this is this might be the last chapter, but it might not. Um, but um just because I'm not running anymore physically not running um the whole 35 or 40 years of when i was and and involved with all those wonderful people in the rca and and some of them at usa at usatf and people like you the athletes because you know i was okay as as a as a runner when i got started because there weren't very many women running and i've won a lot of stuff but um, to be, that's why the Road Scholars was so important to me or such a thrill when we did that because to be able to give a tiny little bit of money to benefit somebody to give them a leg up like you um, was just very meaningful. You know, we didn't have thousands like USATF did, but we could do a little bit, and, and that was always really important to me and just to be able to talk to you uh now during for this is just i don't know i mean it's a it's a highlight of of all those many years it really is and to hear about what your plans are and you have no idea what a thrill that is <laughs> You know, I'm glad that I I still want to get back to the sport because I've I've been helped by so many people and organizations and especially even the RFCA and you know as much as we fight about USATF you know they're still they're still helping as as much as they can as well. So it's definitely fun and and it's because of women like you that that fought really hard for you know, equality and, and making sure that women were able to do what we wanted to do. Yeah. Well, and to enable people like Jean to take the helm of the RCA and take it on to to even higher, you know, yeah. higher things. I mean, it's a thrill. So, yeah. Yeah. thank you for for doing this, and um, I hope I get to meet you one of these days. I hope so too. I um, a lot of women have talked about you when know, this project is finished, maybe doing a we're in pioneer history, uh, get together, and we'll see if we can get that done. Ooh, wouldn't that be fun? I think that would be really fun. Um, you know, whether it's maybe an RFDA conference or something, I'm not sure, but I, I would love to maybe put that in, in somebody's ear and, and see what we can get done. I know. And uh, maybe maybe we could convince Nike that they should go back to their roots and fund it. 